grunge thing that this in quotations grunge all I want to know is where did the term come from I have no idea I think some of the rumors of that um, Jonathan Poneman said it one time sarcastically and it just caught on Who's that? he's um, one of the head honchos at sub pop records um, no one set out to market it market this music as that you know just you know that's what happens when the main media the media catches on and they have to call it something Greetings and welcome to American Moments. This is Matt. And this is Adam. And today, our American Moment... Wait, where'd your beer go? <laughs> Sorry, let me grab that. <laughs> we're talking about grunge. We're hardcore right now. Absolutely. Grunge music we have to be drinking. Yes, where we would be typically having a Cabernet, we're now... Right. I'm having a Miller High Life. I am having a Stella, though. So. Okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's not quite Chardonnay, but yep. it's close. Yep. Anyway. We're here to talk about grunge music. If you're Adam and I's age, grunge music was your favorite music in... High school, junior high, around that time. If you're younger, you may think of it as classic rock. <laughs> yeah, point. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's played on the Fox here in Denver now. Yeah, so spe- the specific moment we're going to talk about is... Is the um, the release of the Deep Six compilation. Which was basically the first commercial album where someone tried to really wrangle this sound that was becoming such a big deal in Seattle and put it out there in record form. Absolutely. Just a a little warning for everyone who's listening. We're going to talk about a lot of things like heroin and overdosing a lot. So if you have little ones, this may be one you want to skip because these people had some pretty unsavory lifestyle habits. There's a lot of 10-year-olds that want to listen to American Moments. Well, you know, it's probably our biggest demographic when I think about it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, before we jump into that moment, um, we want to set the stage a little bit about what popular music looked like before grunge became popular. So we're looking at the late 80s and the first year or two of the 90s. So at that point, um, popular music was really very pop formula driven. I mean, it was very overproduced. Um, You know, there was a formula to it that made it popular. I mean, an example, Wilson Phillips was one of the top selling records of that year. Paula Abdul, Madonna, the, and boy bands were popular. New Kids on the Block was very popular at that point. Yeah, yeah. They, there was, you had Wham, you had Duran Duran. I mean, the 80s was just something else. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Very formula driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of sets the stage for what what music was popular at that point, you know. All right. Yeah, so let's dive into the disaster. That was, Well, that disaster's a little rough, but what was 80s music? And... The 80s, let's just call a spade a spade. It was a decade that needed a harsh correction. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, that music was very artificial, very fake. An era where Flock of Seagulls is the norm and can thrive, it's just stranger than Alice in Wonderland Mm -hmm. to me. For those of you who don't know Flock of Seagulls, just Google it. And you'll pull up pictures of guys who will probably get beat up today in high school. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the only time I've really enjoyed the 80s music is when I watched The Wedding Singer. That's a great movie. It is. Yeah, fantastic. And it's an appropriate place. The for Boy that. George knockoff guy was fantastic. He's the, he was the he stole the movie. To oh, me. that wasn't Boy George? Uh, I don't know. Now you, now you say it, it could have been Boy George. I don't know. Yeah. But the, the 80s were kind of, 
it was just so out there. There was an obsession with wealth and status. You know, you had Duran Duran, who was one of the big pop bands at the time. They just felt very fake and manufactured, and they were wearing suits, and everything was wealth. You know, and from a cinematic perspective, Wall Street just came out, right. and it was just money, money, money. Yeah, I mean, images of, of success were money-based, you know, yeah. wealth-based at that, at that time. And everything was cruising along fine until 1987, Until. where we had, in October 1987, we had the stock market crash. The Dow Jones crashed 507 points, which doesn't sound like a lot. But what you have to realize is that the total number was, that was about 25% of the total amount that that collapsed in one day. And to put that in perspective, that's the biggest one-day drop in U.S. history. Right. That'd be like today, the Dow dropping 5,000 points. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very big deal. Yep. Good evening. It is a day that will be in bold print in history books. Black Monday, October 19, 1987, when the stock market went into a free fall, losing more in one day than it did on Black Tuesday in 1929. And while conditions are much stronger now than they were then, today's precipitous plunge struck fear in the hearts and pocketbooks of even Wall Street veterans. So there was a, a bunch of companies that just were in a really bad place. Back in this time as well, Inflation was a very big problem, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of run-up of debt. I mean, that's a different podcast, but a lot of people think it had to do with the Vietnam War. But inflation was out of control, and the and the rate, you know, we're, we're getting great rates right now. You can buy a house and get a 3.5% rate. Yeah. It, the prime rate was 12% at this point. Right. You were lucky to get a 15% loan. Yeah, exactly. Which led to the savings and loan crisis. Mm-hmm. And the savings and loan, basically, they would take savings and they would loan out the money for mortgages and you know loans and things like that. But they had all this pegged low-term, lower-interest debt that they had loaned out, and they could only borrow money at a higher rate. So they all became insolvent. So you have this perfect storm of financial catastrophe in the United States leading to just kind of a glut in the economy. And Miami Vice and, you know, (laughs) and uh, greed is good. It didn't seem like it was really resonating anymore. No, I mean, it killed the job market. You know, new grads could not find jobs in the late 80s after the you know, the market crash and the savings and loan crisis. Yeah. So kid, kids have been growing up saying oh, greed is good. Mm-hmm. Let's let's follow the dollar. We're all going to get rich. We have backpack-sized cell phones. Everything's going to be yeah. wonderful, right? Yeah. And their parents are starting to lose their jobs, and uh, and the kids are just kind of pissed. And, and the worst possible time to come out into the job market was right about then. Right. Yeah. So how grunge got started, we have to talk a little bit about Seattle at the time, because we, we think of Seattle now as this iconic rock area. But back then, it was just kind of a, a backwater. Of oh, backwater. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I mean, there was L.A. and there was New York. There was glitz and that's glamour. That's exactly. That's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, music was based in those cities. Well, at the, most of the National. commercial music yes, was based. Good point. In, yeah. Commercial music. Yeah. So there was all these bands, there, like the Melvins. A lot of this starts with the Melvins in the early 80s. God, I remember just having a hard time believing what I was hearing because it just seemed like I was getting run over by a really big slow truck. The greatest things about the Melvins is that they're fearless. You know, they just do whatever the f- they want to. I don't want to hear any because you don't like what we're playing. 
And they were kind of a punk band. I mean, is that yeah. is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And, you know, grunge really initiated with punk music. Yeah, it did. Well, punk, you have to think back to the 80s. There was, it's not like there. it was all Cyndi Lauper. There was Metallica. There was Ozzy Osbourne. There's Black Sabbath. Yep. But that was like metal, it was right? Like hard, fast. In your face. In your yeah, face. Exactly. Yep. But there's also a glam angle to it that was just cheesy. And still right. is cheesy. Spray, right, exactly. Like Van Halen. And yep. David Lee Roth, you know, Gene looking Simmons. like a woman. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that a lot of the younger generation was looking at this in the 90s and they're like, this is lame. And so you have that transition into kind of a, a darker themes in music and not wanting the glam. And that's where the Melvins kind of take off. And they were based out of Seattle too, weren't they? Uh, yeah, I believe they were. Yeah. And there were bands like Sonic Youth. All these bands are kind of just matriculating in, in Seattle and no one's really paying attention to them until grunge starts taking off. But taking it, but off it, in Seattle. Yeah, taking off in Seattle. Yeah. It really is taking off and it has a heavy feeling but at a slower speed. Right. And the themes are a lot of about self-loathing and and a lot more dark rather than just I'm going to go out and, yeah. and, and take drugs. You know, against damn society, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So at, at this point, you know, this is kind of tailing on the punk scene. And then the real big band that really kind of defines grunge, really the first one was Green River. And mm-hmm. they were, they had a lot of members of, you know, Soundgarden, what became Soundgarden. Pearl Jam. Uh, Pearl Jam. Yeah, exactly. And they had an internal issues. And that's the reason they ended up breaking up was because there's some of the guys were like, we're, we have a band, let's let's make albums, mm-hmm. let's, let's get rich. And some of the guys are like, no, we, we are counterculture and that's more important. And they end up breaking up. Which dovetails into... Our American moment. So there's two real albums that really define the Seattle sound that come out in this era. The first one is the Green River album called Come On Down. And that is the really first grunge album. And, you know, you may not have heard of Green River, but Adam, as as you pointed out, the members of Green River went on to form Pearl Jam, yeah. Mud Honey, Soundgarden. Yeah, and those exactly. are the big... Those are the big bands of grunge, yeah, early grunge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that happens, like I mentioned before, they had kind of their, their creative differences, as all these bands do, and there's some creative destruction. They go their separate ways. But then in 1986, Soundgarden is is around at this point. You, these bands are doing great. They're selling out shows, but they don't really have any capital. They can't buy studio time. So what they do is they band together and put out an album called the Deep Six Compilation. This was uh, the second seminal Seattle album, and this included bands like Soundgarden, which we know today, Mudhoney, The Melvins, and it really, it broke, and it broke big. Yep. And that was the, the first album that really kind of took off. I think the thing with Deep Six is it, it caught the attention of these record executives in these big record labels and they saw because it was so popular you know it was it was regionally popular but it was very popular and they saw the potential there it led to record contracts well the what, what ends up happening next guys um, named Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman who started a label called Sub Pop in 1986 mm-hmm. and three albums that you, you probably should have heard of if you know anything about this era Nirvana Bleach the Postal Service give up and the Flight of the Concords album. Right. Uh, that they they basically these guys are kind of a counterculture. They're famous for basically telling people who don't get signed to the label that they they address the letter, "Hey loser, you you didn't get signed to our <laughs> right. to our label." But these guys were kind of the counterculture. That they were kind of a bridge to the big labels 
and uh, th- this starts in 1986. They signed Nirvana. They signed a ton of people. So they signed them, you know, thinking that they weren't going to move to larger labels, that they were going to make money off of them regionally and even maybe nationally, maybe West Coast, um, because they, they recognized that sound. At this point, the, the big band, there's, there's a bunch of bands. There's Soundgarden, who's, who ends up getting the first really big deal in this genre. But the big one that was really going to break, everyone thought, was Mother Love Bone. And which has got to be my favorite band name ever. One of the bands that was on the, the Deep Six compilation was called Malfunction and not spelled the right way. Andy or maybe Wood. it is the right way. <laughs> yeah. So Andy Wood was the singer of Malfunction and he, he left the band. You know, there was a breakup because of creative differences. And he goes and starts Mother Love Bone and he basically dies of a heroin o- overdose in 1990. And the remaining band members go on uh, to start up, up with Pearl Jam in 1990. You know, one thing to mention here is at this point, they're on a local, they're signed to a local record label. Sub Pop. They've got albums that have been successful. You know, they have a big following, but they're, again, regional followings. Um, and record label executives notice this and see a potential there. So Soundgarden actually is the first of these grunge bands to sign with a, a large record label. I believe it was A&M um, in 1989. And they released the album Bad Motor Finger. And that became a huge breakout hit. You know, the, really the first grunge mm-hmm album that um, became a hit nationally. Um, With that in mind, these other bands started getting signed. Nirvana. Uh, Adam, you talked about Bleach by Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Their next album, uh, sorry, their next album, Nevermind. Smells like Nevermind. Smells like Nevermind. (laughs) Was again on a a large record label and it it exploded. I mean, the song Smells Like Teen Spirit was the number one played song in 1991. Well, you can't. We have to pause on Nevermind because yeah, yeah. That, that that was the oh, yeah, biggest I, album ever. I remember when that absolutely. came out. That changed everything. It and, did. I mean, these you you know people people could connect to it. Mm-hmm. You know, kids our age could connect to it. And it it was kind of like a gateway drug to Alice in Chains <laughs> and Soundgarden <laughs> yeah. and then Temple of the Dog. That's and, a great point. Yeah, the yeah. Temple of Dog was uh, it was a collaboration between Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Yeah, it was Eddie Vedder. And Chris Cornell, and they put out a bunch of great stuff. But I remember by the time Nirvana hit when I was in sixth grade, I think, something like that. And by the time I was in high school, my yeah. musical landscape had changed. Yeah. Completely. I mean, that Their approach resonated with the apathy of youths mm-hmm. in America at that time. I mean, Kurt Cobain is the poster child for I don't care about anything. Yeah. And screw you, gym teacher. I'm not going up that rope. Right. Yeah. You know that smells like Teen Spirit. The you know Nirvana's video for Smells Like Teen Spirit is iconic. It's a pep rally with gone horribly wrong. Exactly, gone horribly wrong. You know it. It portrays a pep rally. You know, and the ridiculousness of it of of caring about spirit. A football team. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Of uh, 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 it's you know smells like Teen Spirit. Right. Just like the <laughs> the name says. Um, so that was. Another big album that came out, a third big album that really took off was Pearl Jam's 10, which was again released in 1991. That was the one that really got on my radar. That's it. That was pre-Nirvana for me, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I loved Pearl Jam at that point, you know, Alive, even Flow, And then Jeremy, again, another, another story about an apathetic child who turns to violence. I'm sorry that there's a reason to make this video or to write that song. Uh, if parents were a little more in tune with their kids nowadays, I know uh, the 80s and the 70s were the me generation, and kids were left out, 
and uh, the fact that they're left in a very uh, tumultuous world without any guidance, uh, it's, it's very sad. Now we look at it and we're like, mm, I don't know if that, that kind of video or no, that story would that, fly. That, that would not fly today. But back then it did. Well, and you kind of have to contrast the personalities of Eddie Vedder, yeah. who is very private and almost shy mm-hmm. and was not into the, the – this is really kind of the point where these guys kind of diverge in different directions. And Kurt Cobain, who – was just the dark he almost like loved being the dark mystical you know in your face figure right Eddie Vedder they they started getting into causes you know where where they got into lower ticket prices abortion rights things like that yeah and they start getting made fun of yeah they do absolutely because they they weren't counterculture enough which is funny like they have this stage and they're trying to do things right and they get made fun of for trying to make the world better well and this is all off stage stuff which is funny because if you ever saw a Pearl Jam show Eddie Vedder should have died nine trillion times (laughs) because of of the way he contorted himself and jumped around and like hung from the lights I mean at least electrocuted maybe he did get electrocuted who knows right well the crazy thing about these albums was that this was in 1991. In 1990, I won't say half, but a lot of these guys were living in their parents' basement when they weren't touring. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any money, and now they're suddenly on the cover of Rolling Stone and doing tours in the biggest venues across America and the world, for that matter. And, and Pearl Jam, I think, in my opinion, I think they deserve a lot of credit because under, I mean, yeah, it was cool to be counterculture and mm-hmm. you know be against the the man, but they kind of just did what they wanted to do. Their most famous song, and I don't know, are you going to get more into Pearl Jam later, or are we are we on this? No, this is good. Okay, okay good. Yeah, so, just let it flow, buddy. <laughs> that's the Miller High Life talking there. <laughs> so one of their most famous song is um, the uh, remake of Oh Where, Oh Where Can My Baby Be? Uh-huh. And that is about the most ungrunge song ever. It is. But you know what, Pearl Jam just, they went their own way, and that took some courage, I think. Well, they did, you know, and, and I know we're, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but they, and I say they, Eddie Vedder really led the, the challenge against Ticketmaster and the crazy the crazy prices they mm-hmm. charged on top of the ticket price. You say charged like it's past tense. Yeah, I guess they still yeah, do. Yeah. But he basically said, damn Ticketmaster, we're not going to play in Ticketmaster venues. Last Friday morning, Eddie Vedder called in to San Diego radio station X. T-R-A, to clear the air. There's no deal between us and Ticketmaster. We're not playing Ticketmaster shows this summer. Uh, if, 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 if I don't play, if I can't play another show without it being Ticketmaster or the band can't play, I don't, you know, I think we could deal with that. We'll make records. So it almost killed their career. I mean, they didn't tour for three years in the U.S. because of it, because every venue in the U.S. at the time was a Ticketmaster venue. Yeah, that yeah. was the only way you got your tickets. So anyway, I just kind of laid out these these albums that were really big in 1991. Um, that's not necessarily anything new. You know, a lot of times music becomes trendy, and people who are people love that story, right? Someone who's not famous. Um, suddenly becomes famous. But I think we're getting to the tail end of what I would call, and and I want to be fair, but I I think we're getting to the tail end of what I would consider the genuine, air quotes, um, grunge figures, you know, because then you get into, I saw some great interviews. Did did you listen to Alice in Chains at all? 
Yes. I loved me some Alice in Chains. Absolutely. Found out that they were kind of propped up by the big studios, and they were they were supposed to be. I saw a band uh, an interview with one of the band members, and he said they were basically set up to be the Backstreet Boys of grunge. Yeah. Like like get some nice looking yeah. guys and put some flannels on them and let them roll. I mean, and when we talk about the fall of grunge in mm-hmm. a little bit, we'll yeah. talk about that. You know. Yeah. But um, Adam, can you talk a little bit more about? why it exploded so much what what it was so different what was the appeal yeah there's there's a quote i mean it's just it, it connected with the youth of the time right so the the, the economy is crap Parents were, you know, not doing great. The music was fake. Yeah, it gave them something to relate to that was really real and not overproduced. I think the producer, Martin Ruchin, had a great quote. Quote, when you've been through periods where you've had keyboard players with 50,000 pounds worth of kit on stage with 82 keyboards and 95 samplers, after a while you go, hang on, this is like eating too much food at one sitting. It's too much sound. It's too many colors. It's all prancy and posy. Let's go see some bands where they just bash it out, unquote. <laughs> and I, I think that just nails it uh, on, on, on the nose. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Mark, Martin Ruchin isn't, a, isn't necessarily a well-known producer, but he, his biggest success are 80s bands that were overly polished, and he saw this and tried to capitalize on it. Yeah. Did you ever see Rockstar? I didn't know. Oh, it's fantastic. But, but I mean, if you, that, that movie just kind of goes everything that was wrong with the eighties. Like you had these, (laughs) these rinse and repeat guys. I mean, the whole, the whole point was that you could basically lose your lead singer and everything was so set up that they could just plug another guy in (laughs) who knew the songs. And it was just so set up and so ridiculous and so glammy. Is that the one with Mark? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. The seminal actor of our, yeah, exactly. our generation. So I think grunge kind of lived and thrived on the undercurrent of anger uh, of the time. Because, yeah. I mean, you this is right when the economy was bad. And there was a lot to be angry about. But at the same time, a lot of these, these grunge singers started to really resent the fact that a lot of the people they were, that they made fun of and were resentful towards in their mm-hmm. youth were now their fans. Yep, and like the the jock in high school, who made fun of them, was now listening to their music, and there was that counterculture. Oh, there's a lot of people who say that a lot of, a lot of these guys sold out, but I think they just kind of ran out of gas a little bit. I mean, uh, absolutely. But you know, to your point that you know that the the jock who made fun of them was suddenly listening to their music is mm-hmm. very true. I mean, uh, grunge music really infiltrated society in every way. If you didn't have a flannel shirt. To wear in 1992 or 93, and your leather boots, you're, you were nobody. Everybody wore flannel shirts. I think I have a picture from seventh grade, you know, like a class picture, and I think every single person has some sort of flannel t shirt or flannel shirt on. Um, that's when ski hats kind of came back into fashion. Oh my God, I forgot. You know, about wearing that. a ski yeah. hat. Oh man, now you're taking me back. You know, entertainment wise, MTV switched really from playing pop music, and they still did some pop music, but it became grunge, like all these grunge bands. Well, Kurt Loder and and what what was the the girl's Kurt name? Kurt Loder. Well, no, MTV News that would just follow these guys around, and, yeah. and they gave them so much to work with. And uh, you know, at this point, you have Serena Altschul or something. Oh no, that's not who I'm thinking of. Oh, that's who I'm thinking of. Oh, okay, well, the, to keep it together. <laughs> so we have uh, around this time, we have uh, Courtney Love getting together with Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Given how volatile and complicated things were for Kurt around that time, why do you think he chose that moment to um, start his relationship with Courtney? 
I went, I had this relationship with this person, this woman, and I just kind of wanted to build this home for myself because my home growing up had fallen apart. So I wanted to build a home. And I think that Kurt wanted to do that too. He wanted to build a home because his home and his family fell apart. So when Courtney came into his life, they had, she was interesting, she was artistic, intellectual, and you know, she did drugs too, but that was all part of the package of building a home. I mean, she really was the Yoko Ono of Nirvana. She absolutely uh, was. And, and I mean, she was in Hole. You know, yeah. Hole, Hole is really known as one of the few grunge bands led by a female singer. You know, and mm-hmm. they had female. And they were good. And they were good. They were really yeah. good. She's talented. Yeah. There's a lot of people who think she conspired to have him killed. But, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that's a different episode. Um, but she she really got in. And she almost tore the band apart over, you know, their split of the royalties that hair when you starts really ramping up at this point yeah. and all these guys uh you know the, the lead singer of Alice in Chains I felt like I was just doing a big story about heroin yeah, these these guys just became un, non-functioning yeah, almost. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the other thing in the entertainment realm is movies are starting to incorporate grunge music in it. A lot of grunge bands had music on soundtracks, and there was even a movie called Singles that came out in 1992. Cameron Crowe, right? Yep, yep. exactly. Yep. When it came in for Crowe's first. It took place in Seattle. Um, it followed these these group of singles that lived in an apartment complex mm-hmm. in Seattle, and really grunge music was featured heavily on it. One of the main characters was played by Matt Dillon, was a grunge singer. Talking here with Cliff Poncier. Cliff, any comments on the Seattle sound and Citizen Dick's place in it? Well, I don't like to reduce us just to, as being part of the Seattle sound. I like to think of us expanding more. Like, we're huge in Europe right now. I mean, we've got records... Uh, a big record just broke in Belgium. Now, a song like Touch Me, I'm Dick is about what? Well, I think Touch Me, I'm Dick, in essence, speaks for itself. Um, a lot of the famous grunge singers at the time were actually had cameos in the movie. Eddie Vedder was in it. Chris Cornell was even in it. Yeah, um, Allison Chains was in it. The whole band was in it. The whole band. Yeah, they, they, go to, they go to a bar and, and they're they're playing at a bar. Like, that would be awesome. I mean, if you haven't seen singles, it's it's worth a watch. Maybe mm-hmm. on a Saturday when you're doing something else at the yeah, house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, you know, that grunge society had permeated mainstream America. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that, at that point. Yeah. And then at this point, the economy's starting to pick up again. And, and like any movement when it becomes commercialized that's when it stops being cool and grunge was no different a lot of the the singers and the band members and in, in grunge bands quote unquote were sick of the word grunge they, they they were just okay leave me alone go pay 80 dollars for your flannel and leave me alone let's just forget about the whole grunge thing okay just because i don't know why but most people around here when you say that word like want to like take a swing so the independent labels like Sub Pop begin to dry up. And with the promise of big record contracts, there was really no loyalty to the labels. And the 
bands just abandoned them to sign with the big label. So the bands themselves were a culture, but the labels themselves were also cultures. And, it, and mm-hmm. they kind of fed off each other a little bit. Absolutely. So the big labels swoop in and, and, and chew them up. So that's why Nevermind is, is you know, a big label. Um, and, you know, you may argue that Bleach is a better album than Nevermind, but Nevermind is the is the famous album. Yeah. So, uh, again, we'll go through the, the laundry list here, and we'll, we'll get to the big finale, but a lot of the, the lifestyles start catching up, and Kristen Pfaff, the bassist for Hole, she dies, dies of a drug overdose in 1994. Pearl Jam retreats from the spotlight. As you mentioned, they don't tour for three years. Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains basically become non-functional because of drug addictions. Right. And uh, the, the big whammy, I'll never forget this, and this was Kurt Loder's you know, Walter Cronkite moment where <laughs> he, he gets the breaking news that Kurt Cobain has died. Hey, Kurt Cobain, the leader of one of Rock's most gifted and promising bands, Nirvana, is dead. And this is the story as we know it so far. Cobain's body was found in a house in Seattle on Friday morning. He was dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Police found what is said to be a suicide note at the scene, but have not yet divulged its contents. Cobain, who was 27, had reportedly been missing for about six days, according to his mother. The Los Angeles Times reported on Wednesday that Nirvana was breaking up and that Cobain was planning to undergo drug rehabilitation. A source close to the band told MTV News earlier this week that while that story sounded bad, it was better than what was, quote, really going on. If you don't know, we won't get into it on this episode, but there's just some crazy conspiracy theories around around his death. But it's generally agreed that he committed suicide after a bender. Mm-hmm. And he had just been kind of, you know, he had just escaped from rehab. And it was just kind of a big downer. And it, it was I mean, a it downer was, for a culture of downers. I mean, you know? that moment yeah. was pretty much, you know, is really considered the death of grunge mm-hmm. music. But that being said, you know, I, I look at grunge as the curb check that the 80s needed. You needed that, hey, you guys are being lame. Men shouldn't wear women's clothes and <laughs> that type of thing. And here's the, here's the counterculture. But there's some really good musicians that came out of it. Dave Grohl um, went on to, to start the Foo Fighters, right. the drummer for Nirvana. Imagine living in, in a world. Fighters, imagine mean, living in a world where the Foo Fighters don't exist. I know. You know, I love Foo Fighters. That's they're, one of my favorite bands. They're really underrated. Yeah, but but they would have been looked at as poppy at the time yeah. by, by grunge standards. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that too. Kind of part of the fall was these labels saw the popularity of grunge music, and so they started to produce these bands, these mm-hmm. grunge bands, which we now call post-grunge mm-hmm. bands. And they're bands like Candlebox and Bush, Collective Soul, Collective Soul, Creed. yes. They're, you know, they have that that sound, mm-hmm. that grunge sound. And, you know, their videos and their interviews make you think that they don't give a whatever yeah. about about society. But they're produced bands. They're boy bands. Yeah, they're basically boy bands in flannels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, again, the, the, the big record companies got a hold of it and with predictable results. Yep. Yeah. But I, but I think, I mean, you can correct me. If, I, I think it was heading back the other way anyway, you know, because the grunge, I thought, was an overcorrection. Yes. To me. But you, you always, I want to couch that. Grunge became mainstream. So I don't think and punk was what, ever mainstream, right? No. I mean, it, it becomes mainstream, and that's what grunge represented is right. not mainstream. Right. Right. And the uh, alternate culture. A, exactly. But it took grunge to, to, you know, to get us out of the 80s, yeah. I, I, I think. Amen. Um, 
and now we're talking about it on a podcast. But you know, you you can't look at grunge in a vacuum. I think you have to look at what at what it's at, like the Foo Fighters of the world and and Pearl Jam and, yeah. and things like that. And and you know, everyone took their own own way. But the, I think the bands that did really well really broadened their focus after the quote unquote fall of grunge. And you know, just just focusing on on the rage mentality was was kind of a short term thing because the economy got better. You know, you had hip hop starting to take off, and that kind of it had some of the, the anti establishment themes that grunge had as well. Yo, Drake, what up? I got something to say. Well, and, and whether you like her or not, Courtney Love went on to become an actress. She did. Yeah, a good one at that too. Yeah, she was. What was she in? People, People versus, versus Larry, Larry yeah. Flint. <laughs> and then she was also in, in uh, Man on the Moon, I think, too. Was she with Jim Carrey? Yeah, yeah, yeah the Andy Kaufman movie. You know, so really, the end of grunge is known as 1994. I mean, it, it was a hard stop. You know, you look at Kurt Cobain dying three years later, mm-hmm. and that's when I think it was three years, three or four years later. That's when Backstreet Boys in sync. Britney Spears, oh. Christina Aguilera became maybe we need grunge to come back to popular get rid of those. again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and there were still those bands. There were those post grunge bands, and Pearl Jam did stick around. They kind of had a resurgence in the late or in the early two thousands. Soundgarden, you yeah. know, ha- had been around. I don't know if they matched their success of the early nineties, but they they kept touring. I'd go see Soundgarden today. Yeah, and yeah. as you mentioned, yeah. Foo Fighters. Yeah, I'd, I'd look at Foo Fighters as kind of getting the launching point from the grunge era. You know, yeah, and Foo Fighters are definitely not grunge. They're, they're not at all. But you know, they're like but David Grohl was, rock pop. And David Grohl is kind of funny because all these uh, singers are so morose and melancholy, and David, <laughs> David Grohl is just like, "Hey, how's it going, guys?" You know, yeah. just just very nice and positive. So <laughs> I know, um, right. He's like the Mr. Rogers yeah. of the Seattle scene. So uh, so you want to wrap us up? Sure. So, you know, it really died hard in 1994, but in the 2000s, there was somewhat of a, a resurgence of grunge music. Like I said, Pearl Jam continued to tour and record, and by the 2000s, they had gotten through all of their issues with Ticketmaster. Eddie Vedder still was really cause-driven, but I think at this point he didn't let it affect the music. Right. And so they started recording, and those loyal fans that were 13 are now 20, and they're going to their concerts. So they had a couple successful records in the 2000s. Um, as I mentioned, Courtney Love kind of went mainstream and um, changed her image a little bit. I mean, she was kind of like a grunge glam girl. I mean, she cleaned up, she wore makeup, she was pretty. Um, and even some designers, Yes Saint Laurent, I think mm. that's how you say it. You're asking the wrong guy. Yeah. They're French, whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean. Yes, um, that. They they had a whole line of, of flannel clothing that was in homage to grunge. <laughs> and Courtney Love was their muse. For oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, it's tough to reconcile what she is today versus what she was then. Yeah, you know, it was a resurgence in some way, but it was never like it was in the early '90s. And today, it's really known as classic rock. Um, you look, you look today, and I would say, and you may disagree, but I would say that that uh, Nirvana really represents the classic grunge mu- bands now. I mean, I think Nevermind was we just. We just had the 20, 15 year? No, 25 year. 25. We, you know, with Nirvana, we just had the 25 year anniversary of Nevermind. And there was a huge hullabaloo. 
the word about the, about it. Um, there was a documentary that came out, I think it was last year, called Kurt Cobain, a montage of heck, mm-hmm. you know, that was all about Kurt Cobain. I, I, I heard that that was kind of uh, not the most factually accurate. No, it was uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I. Well, I mean, it's just all these documentaries, it just you, I just roll my eyes constantly. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm the punished. Like these guys yeah. are making millions of dollars and they're acting upset about it. I guess that's well, what they're going for. And right? I mean, really, the only the only big band that's left is Pearl Jam with with Chris Cornell dying this year. That's really kind of Rest the end peace. of Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, Scott Whelan died a few years ago of a drug overdose. So that's Stone Temple Pilots, if you don't know. So grunge is dead. So really, grunge <laughs> is dead. <laughs> Thanks, that's, that's Thanks terrible. That. That's terrible. Yeah. But grunge is dead. But, but very much alive because yeah. of our podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah very exactly. much. Like we've saved grunge. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I, what I would recommend everybody do, uh, just to kind of wrap up, because this was by far the most fun I've had researching any of our episodes. Because it was you great. just it, well, you go back and you listen to music, listening and, to all that old music, really good music, oh, I know. really good music. Um, and I watch singles again. You know, mm. that, that's that's a guilty pleasure movie. Yeah. What well, definitely worth a watch. It's a once. good one. Yeah, and it, you, you really it makes you wonder what the next musical shift, the the next groundswell shift is going to be. You do. I mean, our our music right now is very pop focused. It's, it's manufactured. Yeah. So that's kind of my takeaway. Is I, I just looked at well, what's going to be next? What's going to be the next? Overlooked music genre that's going to take the world by storm. What, what, what's the guy? The, the <laughs> William Hung. William Hung. Yeah. <laughs> she bangs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he missed. Uh, he missed his boat there. So. <laughs> well, anyway, so that was um, our American moment today. Thanks so much for listening, uh, um, guys. Yeah, if you like our show and want to show us some support, you can go on uh, iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And if you do a review, let me know, and I'll send you a Starbucks gift card. Just message me directly. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, my name's Adam Vanami, A-D-A-M-B-O-N-N-A-H-M-E. And Matt is Matt Martin. That's pretty easy. If you can't get that, I don't really know how to help I you. I know. Um, I don't have a Twitter, so just... Tweet with Adam. Tweet with me? Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. All right. This song's on the new record. It's called Beatings. I'd like to dedicate it to a couple of people that couldn't be here tonight. This one's for Chris, this one's for Kurt.